Well, take your Bibles out and turn to the book of Exodus. You will need your Bible open this morning to Exodus. We're going to be looking at uh, the better part of three chapters this morning, chapter five, chapter six, and chapter seven. As I preach a message I've entitled, Invincible Glory. Invincible Glory. I've got a saying that I've been using for the better part of 25 years I used it in student ministry when I was a youth pastor, and I've used it in pastoral ministry as a lead pastor, and you've heard it many, many times if you've been around. God is all about his glory. That's just not a trite saying that I try to get a response from you to keep you awake. That's a truth. That's a reality. And this morning, we're going to look at this concept of invincible glory, invincible glory. Here's how Webster's Dictionary defines the term invincible incapable of being conquered, overcome, or subdued. And I would say what a great adjective to describe the glory of God. God's glory is indeed invincible. Nothing can conquer the glory of God. Nothing will be able to overcome the glory of God. Nothing can subdue the glory of God. God's glory will be extended to the ends of the earth. God's glory will conquer all that are raised against us. God's glory will meet its determined end and stated goal. Let me show you a few passages that bear this out as we do a quick survey of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Bible says in Psalm 8, 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 113, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Isaiah 40, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 60, arise, shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen by you. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In the New Testament, Romans 8 says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Ephesians 3, to him be glory in the church, that's us, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. And then finally, Revelation 21.23, and the city That's the city of God. That's heaven. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Friends, the glory of God is invincible. It cannot be overcome. It will not be overwhelmed. God will accomplish all that he has intended to accomplish. But that does not mean there are not enemies of the glory of God. It does not mean there are not individuals or groups or nations or peoples or demonic forces that seek to derail the glory of God, either knowingly or unknowingly, intentionally or unintentionally. There are all kinds of attacks on the glory of God, but the glory of God is invincible. God works his purposes in spite of the attacks upon it. God's ultimate purpose in everything is that his glory would be known. And that purpose is always going to be achieved. 
read from Job earlier, but later in Job, in fact, the last chapter, we find Job's final confession after all has been said and done, after he gives his complaints and his friends give their complaints, and then finally God speaks truth into his heart. Notice how the last chapter of Job's book begins. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I love that word thwart. (laughs) It means to be overcome, to be overdone. Nothing of God's purposes can be thwarted. Translation, God's glory is invincible. And part of what makes this truth so spectacular that no purpose of God will be overturned or overcome is that God accomplishes his glory against foe and even friend who are opposed to his glory. God is performing his purposes and accomplishing his glory, even as Bob Seeger sang, against the wind, against all who would try to overcome it. He's revealing his character in a universe that is fundamentally opposed to his glory. God is accomplishing his glory in a world where his glory is constantly under assault. And we'll see that even in our passage today as we walk through two and a half chapters of the book of Exodus. Three things I want us to consider as we go through it together regarding God's invincible glory is this. Number one, there is a resistance to God's glory. We'll see in this passage the resistance to God's glory. This passage, chapter 5, chapter 6, and even chapter 7, they're some of the saddest passages in the whole Bible. And what makes it so sad is that all the characters are aligned against the glory of God. Even the good guys are aligned against the glory of God. But God refuses to allow his goal to be stopped. And part of what makes this passage such a downer is because of how chapter 4 concluded. If you remember, chapter 4, verse 31 concluded with Moses announcing the coming deliverance of God for the people under slavery, and the people responded to that announcement and to the vision of the miracles that were done in front of them through the hand of Moses and Aaron. They responded two ways. They bowed their heads and they worshiped. They surrendered. That's the bowing of the head. They repented and they worshiped. They expressed their faith, their hope, their trust in God. And so that chapter ended on an incredibly high note. The people are up. The optimism is absolutely palpable. They look at it and they say, God is going to do this. The high school I attended uh, in Tampa, Florida, East Bay High School, it was a pretty big school compared to schools in Chattanooga. Uh, Our student body was over 2,000 students. And so big school, big classes. Um, Our football team, at least for the four years that I was in high school, they were horrible. (laughs) They were awful. Uh, They never had a winning season all four years that I was in high school. But nevertheless, five times a year, we had a pep rally before every home football game. You've been to pep rallies if you were in a high school. And what were those pep rallies like? Well, they crammed 2,000 people, 2,000 kids into the high school gym, right? 
And out comes the band, and the band plays the fight song. Our fight song was Cherokee, oh, no, because we were the Indians. I know that's not culturally appropriate today, but that was the name of our school. And so they would play our fight song. The cheerleaders would come out, and they'd do their cheers. And then the uh, mascot, Chief Cherokee, he would come out with the spirit stick, and he would go from class to class, from the freshmen to the sophomores, the juniors, the seniors. And whoever yelled the loudest got the spirit stick, right? And then the football team would come out onto the, the court, dressed in their street clothes, but they're wearing the home jerseys, right? And the football coach comes out. We've had a good week of practice this week. Boys worked real hard. I feel real confident that we're going to beat whoever it is they're going to be playing. And so we go to the game that, that night. The stands, the student section is packed like sardines. And what happens? Oh, no, we stink again, right? We're horrible. Now, the enthusiasm at the pep rally was tremendous. But you inject a little adversity, and all of a sudden, the student section starts booing the hometown team. This is kind of what we're going to see happening here in the book of Exodus. The context as we enter chapter 5 is kind of like a pep rally. Everybody's ready to go. Chapter 4, verse 31, oh, yes, God, you're going to accomplish your purposes. And now here comes the resistance to God's glory, and their confidence takes a nosedive. We see the resistance to God's glory from three characters in this real-life drama. The first character is this one, a defiant pharaoh. We see a defiant pharaoh. He's a hard-hearted king who is totally resistant to God's will, God's purposes, and God's intentions. Notice the first four verses of chapter 5. The Bible says this, afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, that's Yahweh, his personal name, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I shall obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh, our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Get back to work. Pharaoh was defiant. He would not respond. And further, what does he do? He accuses Moses and Aaron of being bad influences on the people. They're taking them away from their most important work, making bricks. You're removing them from this very important job in the Egyptian empire, making bricks. The inference here is that you're causing my slaves to be lazy. Now, Pharaoh could have just said, request denied, but he doesn't because he understands that in this moment, he can do something to cause further damage, and that is to create a wedge between Moses and Aaron and the people of Israel. He's seeking to sow discord among the brethren. This is what evil people do. When we get to verse 6, what we'll see that he further does is he instructs the taskmasters to take away the straw that's necessary for the making of bricks. Straw is like an aggregate. It holds the brick together. And so Pharaoh says, we're going to take the government supply of straw away from the slaves. They've got to go get their own straw to make the bricks. 
Oh, and by the way, you've got to keep the same quota of bricks that you've had already. You've just got to go find your own straw. You can't use our straw. Now, Pharaoh was no idiot. He knew that the people would not be able to keep up the same quota of bricks unless they had the government supply of straw, and that was the exact point. See, if all Pharaoh wanted was more bricks, he would have provided the straw, but that's not what Pharaoh wanted. The bricks are irrelevant at this point. What Pharaoh is seeking to do is to drive a wedge to create division between the people. Pharaoh is evil, but Pharaoh is not stupid. Satan is evil, but Satan is not stupid. He knows the best way to derail God's purposes in and through us is to create division among us, right? That's what he seeks to do, and that's exactly what Pharaoh sought to do. Pharaoh inherently knew some of these quotes that we're familiar with as Americans. Patrick Henry, the patriot and revolutionary, said this on March 4th, 1799, united we stand, divided we fall. Pharaoh knew inherently what Abraham Lincoln would say a generation later, a house divided against itself cannot stand, June 16th, 1858. Of course, Lincoln was quoting Jesus from Matthew 12 because this is a truth. He understood this. If I can bring division, uh, they will not be united and they will fall. They cannot stand if they're divided against themselves. He understood this even though these quotes would be made 3,500 years after Pharaoh existed. So that's how he seeks to resist the glory of God by sowing discord among the brethren, which leads to the next resistance to God's glory, not only a defiant Pharaoh, but a discouraged people. A discouraged people. Because of Moses' and Aaron's request, he comes down hard, not on Moses and Aaron, he comes down hard on the people. He comes down hard on the Hebrews, his slave labor force, making it more difficult for them to produce what they're supposed to produce. And what does this bring in them? Discouragement. Look at verses 17 through 19. But he said, that's Pharaoh said, you are idle. You are idle. Anytime you see a repetition in the Bible, it's there for emphasis. You're lazy. That's why you say, let us go and sacrifice to Yahweh. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. If they don't get the straw, they can't produce the bricks. If they don't produce the bricks, the taskmasters will come down harsh on them and beat them. If they are beaten by the taskmasters, the Hebrews will complain. And instead of turning to the Lord and crying out to him, instead of even turning to Moses and Aaron to try to get some clarity on the situation, they turn against them and they turn instead and make a complaint to Pharaoh. They're hoping that at this point, Pharaoh is gonna just say, okay, you Hebrews have been some pretty good slaves for the last 400 years. I understand you made a mistake in asking for a three-day vacation. But by the way, who put that idea of a vacation in your mind anyway? Whose big idea was this, that you would go into the wilderness for three days and sacrifice to some God I've never heard of named Yahweh? Who made you think of this? And the people think, well, who did give us this idea? Whose idea was this, by the way? Oh, it was Moses and Aaron's idea. And so they're thinking, you know what? Pharaoh's got a good point here. Everything was fine. Sure, we were slaves. We're under harsh taskmasters, but it was at least somewhat bearable. This is all Moses and Aaron's fault. So look how Verse 20 and 21 continue as they uh, respond to Moses and Aaron. They, that's the people, 
met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. So they made complaints to Pharaoh. Verse 21, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. In other words, this is all your fault. The whole reason we're suffering, the whole reason we're under this oppression from Pharaoh is because of you, Moses, and you, Aaron. And so you have this defiant, hard-hearted king. You have the discouraged people, all of whom are resisting the glory of God. But what about Moses? Well, surely he's going to remain faithful, right? Surely he's going to keep his feet firmly planted in the truth of who God is and the truth of God's word. He's going to be a man of faith. He's going to stand strong in the face of trials. Um, I'm sorry, he's not. That's the third resistor to the glory of God, a disobedient and disinclined prophet. I couldn't decide on which D word to use here, so I use both of them. He is both disobedient and disinclined. How so? First, Moses was disobedient. How was he disobedient to God? Sometimes when reading the Bible, you need to look for not just things that are there, but things that are not there. And as you read here in Exodus, there are things in the narrative that are missing. For instance, uh, God told Moses and Aaron to take the elders of Israel with them when they make their request to the king. That's chapter 3, verse 18. But I don't know if you noticed, in chapter 6 and chapter 5, when he goes before Pharaoh, the elders of the people are not with them. Listen, partial obedience is full disobedience. Partial obedience is full disobedience. He did not obey the clear instructions of the Lord. Further, he was disobedient in that he added to the word of the Lord. Something else here is that he gave his own little commentary. When he's speaking to Pharaoh, he says, hey, Pharaoh, if you don't let us go, God's going to come down upon us with pestilence and with a sword. Did God ever threaten that? No. This is an addendum by Moses. But Moses was not only disobedient, he is also disinclined. He is disinclined to believe the promises of God. When Moses sees the people get on the disbelief train, the unbelief train, he hops on and goes for a ride himself. Look at the words of the disobedient and disinclined prophet in verses 22 and 23. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Hello, Moses. Don't you remember what God told you? You're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to say, let my people go. And what, what did God tell you Pharaoh was going to say? Oh, sure, go ahead. No, God told you ahead of time he will not let them go. He will not respond positively to your request. He told you, in fact, there's a purpose behind why he's going to say no. And the purpose behind it is this, that God would use that resistance of Pharaoh to display his own power and wonders upon him and upon the nation of Egypt. 
And so, friends, that's a pretty awful place to be where he is right here. He's lost hope. He's lost all hope. And Moses concludes his complaint to God by blaming everything on God. Look at that last line. And you have not delivered your people at all. Moses is saying, God, this is all 100% your fault. He's essentially throwing God under the bus. What is God ever going to do? That leads to the second thing this morning I want you to see. Number two, the resolve of God's glory. The resolve of God's glory. This is spectacular. As we move into chapter six, God reveals his own personal resolve to his own glory. And here's how he does it. He reveals an aspect of his character. He reveals an aspect of his divine nature. And here's the character trait that I see jumping off the page in Exodus chapter six. Watch this, the character of patience. God demonstrates amazing, incredible patience. In Galatians chapter five, the apostle Paul gives us the fruit of the spirit of God. These are attributes that God possesses and that God demonstrates. And one of those attributes is the attribute of patience. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 that God is love. What is a mark of love? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. So God is by nature patient. And here in chapter 5, he demonstrates that patience in an incredible way. He is inexplicably patient. Now in this, trans, in this context with all that's transpired, I'm sorry for that clicking, guys. I'm trying to control it here, but of no avail. With all that's transpired in the first eight verses, I'm going to read in just a moment, what you'll see is that God demonstrates amazing patience. How many times does God have to repeat his plan? He repeats it to Moses. He repeats it to the children. He repeats it to the elders. He repeats it to Pharaoh. Again and again and again, he repeats his plan. He repeats his purpose, why he's doing what he's doing. He repeats his name, I am Yahweh. He even repeats the fact that he is the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he is the God of Israel long ago. For the last three Sundays, we've seen and considered Moses' conversation with God at the burning bush. And again, these things were repeated again and again and again. And so now here we are in chapter 5 and chapter 6, and they are resisting God's plan. They are resisting God's purposes. They are forgetting God's name and God's covenant. And here's what I see. God, why are you not just evaporating them? (laughs) Why don't you just wipe them out and start with somebody else? Here's why. God's patience. Are you thankful for God's patience in your life? How often has he demonstrated patience to you when you have been disobedient and disinterested? He patiently repeats and reiterates his purposes, his love. And you know, as I read it and as I thought about God's patience, I started thinking about my lack of patience. My lack of patience as a pastor. My lack of patience as a parent. My lack of patience as a spouse, as a husband. 
You see it in your own life? God is so patient with us, with his people. As I read the beginning of chapter 6 here, I want you to notice in particular how God describes his unilateral action. And the way it describes it is with these two words, I will. I will. Take your hands out and count the number of times he says, I will. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into a land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. How many did you get? Eight. Eight I wills. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. God says I am unilaterally going to work on your behalf. What patience. Surely, when God comes to the people again and reiterates his promises, his commitment his covenant, surely they will repent and believe. Surely when God comes to you and reminds you of his promises in the gospel, you repent and believe. Surely, surely not. Look at verse nine. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They had a broken spirit. Why? Because of the harshness of their slavery. You see, the only thing they had their eyes on was this one fact. We got no straw. We got no straw. It was the first thing they thought of when they got up in the morning. Where are we going to find some straw? It was what they dreamed of at night. Where's the straw? All they could think about, this is so harsh. We've got our quota of bricks. We've got to continue to maintain, and we've got no straw. How are we going to do this? In fact, look at this next slide. All they could see was their problems. They could not see God's promises. Has this ever been true in your own life? You clearly can see the problems, but you can't see the promises so nearsighted, so focused on all the problems that are right here, we can't even see or make out, and those promises of God are completely unrecognizable. What are some promises that Jesus has made to us? 
I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's a promise. But all we can see is the lack of straw. I will give you life and life abundantly. All we can see is the lack of straw. I will be a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And we would rather just get some straw to make our slavery to sin a little more palatable than it is instead of walking in the promises of God. Well, at least Moses is back on board, right? (laughs) At least Moses is going to have a positive attitude, right? Wrong. (laughs) Look at verses 10 through 13, verse 10 through 12. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How did you Pharaoh listen to me? For I'm of uncircumcised lips. He just goes in the corner and starts pouting. Woe is me. Everybody hates me. I think I'll eat some worms. That's Moses. And now just an aside here, this is one reason we know the Bible is true. We know the Bible is true. You may have heard this phrase that has been tossed around some in our day, particularly with the culture wars that rage. Here's the phrase. You've probably heard something like it. History is written by the victors. Or history is written by the winners, sometimes the phrase says. What does this mean? The way it's interpreted is the winners who win the wars, the winners who do the colonizing of nations, they're the ones who write down and record history, and they always make themselves out as being the good guys. And the people they've beaten, the people they've colonized, well, they're the bad guys. The people who write history record history through the lens where they're the ones who are morally superior, and the people who've been defeated are morally inferior. Now, whether or not that argument holds water, I'm not going to debate today. But what it does show us is that we all recognize there is a bent with which people write to put themselves in the best light. Moses is recording this history, real history, true history, and he presents an accurate portrayal of himself, but we cannot forget the fact that he's the one that wrote it down. This proves the truthfulness of the Bible that he portrays himself under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as not that very smart, as not that very faithful. We can see the same thing in the New Testament, in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written by apostles or close associates of apostles, and they often portray themselves in not the best light. If they made this all up, well, they would be portraying themselves as the heroes of the story, but they're not. God's resolve for his own glory is still on display In fact, look at the very next verse, verse 13. Even though he's pouting in the corner, but the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. God continues to show incredible patience with Moses. Now, for reasons I really don't understand, Moses determined right after this verse to now record a genealogy. We won't read all the genealogy. But it's a genealogy of Moses. And Moses, I think, is basically saying, this is how you know that I'm the one writing this who's really the same Moses who is here in the story. Here's my genealogy. And then we get to verse 28, and notice what happens. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. 
Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. Surely now Moses is coming around. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips. How will Moses, Pharaoh listen to me? This is Moses. He still doesn't believe. He still has very weak faith. But God is resolved to display his glory. Or to borrow from cliche, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And that's what God determines to do. God has a resolve for his own glory. In spite of the resistance of Pharaoh, in spite of the resistance of the people, and even in spite of the resistance of this reluctant prophet Moses, which really leads us to the third and final thing I want us to see this morning, the reach of God's glory. As we move into chapter 7, well, Moses and Aaron are finally convinced to go before Pharaoh again, but before they go, God lovingly and compassionately warns Moses again and says, listen, I want you to go. I want you to go talk to him. But as you go, you need to know this. He's not going to listen to you, but go anyway. Look at verses 2 through 4 of chapter 7. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will, here's another I will, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Why will Pharaoh not listen to Moses? God says why in the passage. I will harden his heart. Now, what does that mean? Just what it says. God, the sovereign of the universe, hardened the heart of Pharaoh to not listen and not respond to Moses. Multiple signs, multiple miracles. Next week, you'll see multiple plagues on the people of Egypt. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What? What? Why? As the chapter continues, and we'll see, I'll answer that in just a minute. As the chapter continues, God tells Moses, do the snake miracle. You know, where you drop the staff, it turns into a snake. Do that miracle. He's not going to listen. But do that miracle anyway. And so Aaron does. He takes the staff. He casts it on the ground. It turns into a serpent. And notice what Pharaoh does in response to that miracle. Verses 11 through 13. So Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers. And they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret act. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. Watch this. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. He continues to be defiant. He continues to be hard-hearted. Now, I told you last week that the cobra was a symbol of Egyptians' power. It was a symbol of Pharaoh's power. And so here in this first miracle that Moses does before Pharaoh, all of his magicians turned their staffs into snakes. However they did it, we don't know. But what did Aaron's staff do? It swallowed up all of their snakes. What does this demonstrate? All your power, Pharaoh, all your power, Egypt, 
is nothing compared to the power of God. God's glory is invincible. Now, I told you in week one of this series that we interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. What is in the Old Testament concealed is in the New Testament revealed. What is in the Old Testament contained is in the New Testament explained. So what is this hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? How do we understand this? Well, we can get some insight by looking in the New Testament, particularly Paul's writing in Romans chapter 9. Notice what Romans 9 verse 17 says. For the scripture says, this is the book of Exodus. Paul is quoting Exodus chapter 9 here. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. But what's one word we could use to describe the name of God being proclaimed in all the earth. What's a word? Glory. <laughs> Here's what's going to happen, Pharaoh. I'm going to make your hard heart harder. You're going to oppose me. And the reason that's going to happen, glory. Glory. This is the fundamental, comprehensive reason why all that's happening in the book of Exodus is happening so that God's name might be proclaimed because of the invincible glory of God. And Paul continues to describe how this is glory. Let's break it down. Look at verse 22 and 23 of Romans chapter 9 as Paul continues this description of Pharaoh and Exodus. What if, Paul writes, God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now, what Paul's doing here in Romans 9 is he's using a metaphor of a potter and the clay. And he says, let's play a what-if game. What if God, being the potter, takes this lump of clay and he begins to mold and shape this clay and he's forming on the potter's wheel this beautiful vessel, this vase, and he's making it incredibly perfect and pristine. And he takes that lump that is now this formed and shaped vessel. He puts it in the kiln and he fires the kiln and that vessel is hardened. He pulls it out of the kiln. It cools. After it's cooled, he begins to color it. He begins to paint it. He begins to decorate it with pristine and majestic beauty. And then he puts this glaze on top of it so it is glossy and it reflects the sun. And you look at this magnificent beautiful vessel called Pharaoh. And with much patience, God has created this beautiful vessel. Why? To display his wrath. It's exactly what the text says. Why? Because when you see the wrath of God, the mercy of God, is so much more magnificent. When you see the wrath of God poured out on just sinners, the mercy of God is so beautiful. A vessel of wrath. Was God unjust? 
by no means. Is God unloving? Absolutely not. In fact, I will tell you the greatest injustice of human history is when the innocent Son of God was falsely convicted by the highest court in the land, the Sanhedrin. The greatest injustice of human history is when the wrath of the Sanhedrin, when the wrath of Pilate, when the wrath of King Herod, when the wrath of the Roman Empire, when the wrath of God was poured out on the beautiful vessel of Jesus. He was a vessel of wrath. Why? Because as Jesus took that wrath in our place, he could give us his grace. He could give us his peace. He could give us his salvation. The Bible refers to that as a propitiation, a wrath-atoning, wrath-taking, wrath-assuaging sacrifice. We often sing this hymn here. It's one of my favorites, In Christ Alone. Notice what the second verse of this hymn says. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin. Any sinners in here? Every sin, your sin, my sin, Pharaoh's sin, Moses' sin, every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. When the wrath of God comes down hard, the patience, the mercy, and the beauty, and the love of God becomes so much more beautiful. And that's what we see in the gospel. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news that Christ took in your place the wrath, the punishment, the anger that your sin and my sin deserved. He did that so that all who turn from their sin, who surrender to Christ as Lord, and have life in his name. So here's how we conclude. Look to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. That leads to my last thought. God's glory is displayed most clearly through the wrath-assuaging death of Jesus in our place for our salvation.